0: This is True Crime Exposed, and I'm your host, Kayla Waters. Each week, I'm joined by our co-host, Alicia Jenkins, while I share with you a new deep dive into another case. By sharing a victim's story, we hope to put the pressure on you so that you can get involved and help make a difference. We present this show to expose the monsters lurking all around us. Hey friends, I wanted to start off by thanking you for your reviews. All of you who have left reviews and said kind words, you're amazing. I'm literally obsessed with you. Love ya. Um, And for today's case, you'll see it's a two-parter. I actually didn't plan on it being a two-parter. It just ended up longer than I thought it would. And you know me, I'm not going to cut out any of the details. So part one, you're listening to right now. Part two will be available in our regular feed for next week's episode, but you can access part two right now and ad free if you are a member of our fan club. So there are a couple ways you can access our fan club. One, through the Patreon link, which is always in our show notes and on our social media and all of that fun stuff. Um, On Patreon, there's a few different tiers you can sign up for. And then you can also access our fan club If you are on Apple Podcasts and that's where you listen, there is a subscription there and that subscription is similar to our second tier, our middle tier over on Patreon. So there's a couple different options on Patreon, but also the Apple Podcast subscription is very convenient if that's where you listen anyway. So like I said, if you're a potter, part of our fan club, you can listen right now early and ad free. And then next week, your bonus episode will be coming out. Also, being a part of the fan club is just a fun little perk if you want to. If not, that's totally fine. Um, but I am getting ready to send out these cute little like fan club surprises. So if you are a part of our fan club, get ready for those. So for the case I'm discussing with you today, it's a tragic one. And if you look it up online, you will only be able to find a handful of pages detailing information. Thankfully, I was able to talk with Nicole Garcia, and she will be helping me tell her story today. She shared information with me that can't be found online, giving me just a little more insight into the victims here. Nicole is the daughter of a victim in this case. She is also the daughter of the perpetrator. This is her story, one where a daughter is witness to a murder and has to testify against her own father. With that, are you ready for today's case? I'm taking you back to August of 1985 in Redding, California. Summer is coming to an end, and that's always bittersweet. Like, we all love a good adventure filled summer. But it's also nice to jump back into a more routine schedule with school days starting. So about a week ago, Natalie Burnett Roop took her daughter Nicole to meet the teacher's night at the kindergarten she's enrolled in. She will be starting here soon as fall gets underway. Nicole recalls the hallways being decorated in Sesame Street characters and she was excited about starting elementary school. Their family had gone through a lot in the past few months. By May of 1985, Nicole's parents decided to separate with plans to divorce. And this split was contentious. Natalie had been married to Paul Anthony Roop. The couple shares three children, Nicole being the oldest, and co-parenting wasn't going so smoothly. Arguments erupted over possessions, custody of the children, and the separation in general.
1: And it seemed like most... Most of the times where they would have altercations is because they were fighting over custody of us.
0: So it's not too long before Nicole is set to start kindergarten that Natalie moves in with a friend in a similar situation. This friend is Deborah Lynn Robbins. She has a daughter as well, close in age with Nicole. And the two women are able to find a home together. This will lessen the financial burden of single motherhood and they can support each other along the way. It's only about a week after Nicole visits her new school and gets ready for this new chapter in her life that her world comes crumbling down. Nicole normally sleeps in her bedroom, which she shares with her sister, who is three years old at this time, and her brother, who is around a year and a half old. But on August 23rd, she falls asleep beside her mom, Natalie. Her siblings are tucked in their own beds in the children's bedroom, and Natalie's roommate, Deborah, is asleep in her own bedroom. Debra's daughter is away on a weekend visit with her dad. Friday night goes by peacefully, but the early morning hours of Saturday, August 24th, 1985, turn gruesome. We had a bedroom that the three of us shared,
1: uh, but I frequently slept with my mother. And on this particular night, I was in bed with my mother and my siblings were in their bedroom.
0: Natalie's ex, the husband she is currently separated from, rushes to the home. When, when I say rushes, I literally mean he is running to the woman's home after being dropped off in the neighborhood by a bell bondsman. And yes, you heard that right. Paul was just belled out of jail.
2: Why is he running to their house?
0: So the bell bondsman drops him off and he just gets out and starts running towards their house.
2: But that's not where he lived.
0: No. So the bell bondsman is taking him back into the neighborhood of... Natalie and Deborah, because on that Friday night while Natalie her kids and Deborah fall asleep inside their home a neighbor is peering outside to see Paul creeping around the house which is in the Churn Court neighborhood and the police had arrived to find Paul yielding a knife while outside of Natalie's home. Mm, okay. So he had been arrested for prowling and now the bell bondsman is dropping him off back in that neighborhood because his motorcycle was there. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it was only hours later that Paul was able to post this bond, which if you guys don't didn't know, a bell bondsman can basically bail you out for a lower price. Like I think it's around 10 to 20% of your like original bond. One of my old lash techs was a bell bondsman. So she was always telling me. <laughs> like how they went about yes, it.
2: Yes, at least here it's 10%. Okay. And I know
0: that. Yeah. You've bailed people out of jail. <laughs> I've bailed people out. Uh, yes. So yes, a bell bondsman get them out for cheaper and they're kind of like contracted. It's not something through like the gel or anything. So this was just a random guy that Paul called and then when he's able to help him post the bond, he just asks, like, do you need a ride? I can drive you home. And obviously, Paul takes the ride. And like I said, he doesn't want to go to his home. He asks instead to be taken to that neighborhood where his motor motorcycle had been left. It, it actually was the same day, pretty much. He
1: was, he was in the tree with the knife. I guess he must have been waiting for my mom to come out. I don't know. I don't know what he was doing, but he was in the tree, and he had his motorcycle hidden, covered in ivy, or some kind of plant. Covered in a plant. And, um, one of the neighbors calls it. It was like this crazy guy sitting in a tree with a knife. So, he, he got arrested for prowling. Uh, like, Hours before. Yeah. Yeah. So he he gets arrested for prowling. Um, he gets out on a $3,000 bail bond. And uh, the bail bondsman said, hey, I can drive you home. Because he was about to walk. And he's like, oh, I'll drive you home. And he goes, oh, no, no. Can you please drive me over here? I left my motorcycle over here. The bail bondsman. Yeah. Yeah. When he has, she has a restraining order on him but obviously there was no computers back then so um, so he go. the bell bondsman said that as he's pulling up he hadn't even went to a full stop he had opened the door to his vehicle got out and began ran, running towards my mother's house
0: When they pull into the neighborhood, this is when Paul jumps out of the car and starts running to Natalie and Deborah's home. He forcibly enters, and since his knife was confiscated in the arrest just hours earlier, he heads for the kitchen, first grabbing a knife there, and then strolling into Natalie's room where he finds both Natalie and his five-year-old daughter, Nicole. Um, I couldn't find any news articles other than the public outcry about
1: having issues with Bell bonds, but they the the bail bondsman and the judges and everybody said there was no way of knowing that he would have done this that he had no criminal record he had no violent history that of course he would have got out on bond yeah that's what confuses me when they say
0: that he had no no violent history well there's a restraining order Instead of having a change of heart upon seeing his own daughter snuggled up to her mom in bed, he continues with his evil plan, plunging the knife into Natalie's body. She wakes up in a panic. Now she's screaming, waking up both her daughter and her roommate, Deborah.
2: Oh my gosh, what a psycho.
0: I know. The fact that he could do that with his daughter in the bed like that wouldn't make you second guess like what am i doing here actually well right
2: after getting out of
0: jail yes like you were just caught for prowling around their house with a knife the second you're out you're like i better get this done oh my gosh like obviously you're going to jail for this he probably didn't care no he does because he keeps appealing even did an appeal this year and still maintains his innocence he's obviously not even probably just from what you've heard But there's even more evidence. I was going to say, how is he innocent? But this alone is like, yeah, you did it. And then there's even more. So I'm not sure how he thought he was going to get away with it, but he doesn't. I remember um, my mother
1: screaming and I woke up to her screaming and was screaming with her and watched it happen. I also remember hearing the motorcycle drive away. I went into shock and I believe I fell
0: asleep right after. So Deborah must have woken up to the screaming, and I'm guessing she instantly knows what's going on. These women had feared Paul. In fact, Deborah was so terrified of him, she was scared to continue living with Natalie, and she was actively searching for a new home. So Deborah launches herself over to the CB radio sitting inside her room. She calls for help, but Paul has already busted into her room. After stabbing Natalie 17 times, he turns his rage on Deborah, stabbing her 20 times. It's like a vicious attack. Yes. Literally the whole time, remember, his daughter is there. And that's who I talked to for this interview.
2: Oh, really? Yes.
0: The one who was in bed with her mom.
2: Oh, that's devastating.
0: And it's affected her life, obviously.
2: Oh, my goodness.
0: Yeah. When uh, Deborah goes to like get that CB radio, she's able to turn it on. And a woman by the name of Paula Burns would later testify in trial that during the early morning hours of August 24th, she was listening to her CB radio when a faint voice comes through the speaker. She heard this voice say Paul three times in a row. And Paula quickly grabs her radio to talk back, asking where this call is coming from. The only word she can make out is churn. And then there's silence. Looking back, it seems that Deborah was possibly referring to the Churncourt neighborhood she lived in. But at the time, Paula didn't know what to do with this call. It was strange, but without the hindsight of knowing what happened, it was not overly alarming. So Paula just continues to monitor the CB radio, wondering if anything else will come through.
2: Did you say this was 1985?
0: 1985, yeah. And I was going to explain, like, for people that don't know what a CB radio is... And maybe you even know better than me. I just looked it up and also asked Jacob because I know truckers use it. But it was described as a public two-way personal radio service. So the voice communications form of CB radio became a fad, it said, in the 1970s. So this is what Deborah had in her room and also what Paula had in her home. So if you're on the same channel, you can hear anyone that is talking into their radio on that channel. And then, like I said, the radio system still used today, mostly among truckers. And then, like, some people have them in their cars and stuff.
2: I was surprised that um, she didn't have, like, a phone, like a normal phone in her room.
0: But in her bedroom, she had this radio. Don't know why. But she well, just some did, people so she... would
2: just listen to it to see if they could, like, hear emergency calls or ambulances or, like, where to chase the crime or...
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yep, I've heard that. And so, yeah, it was probably the only thing she did have in her room. And when she's getting attacked, that's what she goes for. Smart. Because she says, Paul, Paul, Paul. And then she just says, churn. Probably trying to say her neighborhood, but couldn't get it all the way out. Yeah. Which is so sad. So... In the appeal later on, Paul will claim that Paula's testimony was perjured testimony, meaning he's saying it's false, like she made it up. He makes this claim because the district attorney that prosecuted his case was in possession of a crime scene photograph. This showed Deborah inside her room, deceased, with her hand reaching out to the CB radio. When she was found, her hand was within three inches of the radio microphone. It was dangling from the cord. Paul's argument is that the photo shows Deborah's radio turned to channel ten, not channel nine, which Paula had testified she was on. Which for me, it's like, okay, Paul, but you had killed Deborah after she clearly called out on that C B radio, so you were the last one in the room. Like, what's to say you didn't turn it to channel ten before you left? Exactly. Right. <laughs> he probably like knew he probably heard her calling on it and then changed it I don't switched know switched it
2: yeah
0: yeah just speculation but I was like that yeah that doesn't mean her testimony's false so Paul also argued in his appeal that Paula's timeline of events put the call around 6 25 a.m in the morning which isn't on track with the state pathologist findings that the time of death for Natalie and Deborah was about 5 30 a.m And I don't have the autopsy or pathologist reports, but this was in 1985. So I wonder what means were taken to determine an exact time of death and if that could be flexible within an hour or so. Do you know? I don't. You're more medical than me, so I don't know. I don't know if you've ever, if you determine time of death in anybody. I
2: mean, just little babies. Yeah. Just when they lose their heart rate, so.
0: Yeah. So I feel like it's always... In a lot of things I've listened to, it seems kind of hard to determine an exact time. Right. Because you're looking at a body already deceased, that's already been deceased, and there's obviously all these things you can do to find it out. Yeah, you kind of had to guess. Yeah. I feel that there is a possibility it could be a little more flexible, and there's also a possibility that Paula doesn't remember the exact time she was on. Yeah, Because I don't remember anything, so I would never know an exact time I was doing something. True. So, Literally so true. So regardless, the court has never granted Paul any of his appeals. With this argument, they said whether or not the testimony was perjured, it would not have made a difference in the outcome of this trial. There was an abundance of evidence against Paul for the murders of Natalie and Deborah. When Paul flees the scene, literally leaving his five-year-old daughter behind with her dead mother, he makes some big mistakes. Which, hallelujah, we're always grateful when criminals are stupid. But next to Natalie's body, Paul drops a box of cigarettes. His fingerprints are found on this carton. On top of that, his checkbook is dropped in a neighbor's yard as he's running away. And when police search Paul's home, he's running a bloody load of laundry, Blood stains matching Deborah's blood type are also found on Paul's motorcycle and inside his home. So mm. he clearly did this. Yeah. And even though it's just blood that matched her blood type, because I don't think they were testing DNA in 1985 or it was very new.
2: Well, he wouldn't need to be doing a bloody load of laundry that was someone else's blood type.
0: Exactly. And it's just like, yeah. It's just not normal for you to have blood in your home that matches someone who was just murdered at a house you were just arrested at for stalking (laughs) like just common sense it all comes together yeah he obviously did it and later on in you know so i think he filed a couple of appeals. one like right after and then one this last year so in one of those appeals paul will claim that his fourth amendment rights were violated with this search Officer Thomas W. Sears had taped his interview with Paul the morning of the murders. This tape recording does have some gaps, so Paul claims he only consented to the search if he were present, while Officer Sears claims Paul gave consent to search with no conditions tied to it. Paul says the tapes were tampered with by the officer, and this is why the piece of the recording where Paul says they can only search with him present is not heard. Now the court doesn't even deny that the recording had some gaps. It stated in the appeal that regardless of some irregularities with the recording, the trial judge chooses to believe officer Sears over Paul Roop. And that the irregular... oh, can't say that word very well. I went to speech therapy for my Rs. So two Rs in a row. Those are hard. <laughs> Those are oh hard for goodness. me. So they were all saying that the irregularities on the tape could have occurred for multiple reasons, all of which were not sinister. So that was kind of like, I was surprised that they were like, yeah, this tape recording is kind of irregular, but. It's
2: like, there's some gaps, but who cares?
0: Yeah, like you killed them. So we're gonna go with what the officer's saying. And like, we don't really care that you feel your rights were violated that we searched your house. Well, he had dropped a
1: checkbook in one of the neighbor's yards because he jumped the fence. And there was a pack of cigarettes, I believe, that was dropped also. When the police came to his home, he um, was washing a bloody load of laundry. You know, they took the laundry as evidence. And because there was scant blood, he tried tried to make this as a point like he didn't do it because there wasn't that much blood, which the prosecuting attorney said no shout can
0: take out blood. (laughs) Going back to that fateful morning, Nicole is left inside her home with no living adult. She explained herself earlier as falling back asleep due to shock. Now when she comes to, she sees blood splattered across the entire room. It's everywhere. And there's her mom laying on the floor. Nicole knows her mom was killed. She needs to find help. So she makes her way to Deborah's room where she finds a second bloody crime scene. Debra is dead, too. Nicole tries to figure out how the phone works so that she can call for help, but she's only five years old. She does not know what to do. And then I, I woke up.
1: Um, I remember there was blood all around me and my mother's body next to me. And I got up to go uh, to Debra's room and saw that she was also dead. I went to get the phone to try to call 911, but I was five and didn't know how to do it.
0: <laughs> All Nicole can think in this moment is that she needs to care for her little brother and sister. She also knows they're going to have to move now. After getting her siblings up for the day and trying her best to be a little mama, she starts packing up their clothes, Aww. telling her sister, we have to move.
2: Did she say if she like knew any of her neighbors or anything? I mean, I guess they were new there.
0: Yeah, they were pretty new. So I think she just, she literally just waited inside that home with her brother and sister until someone knocks on the door. Hmm. Which thankfully happens pretty quickly because it's just hours after Nicole's mom is killed in front of her that she hears that knock. Finally, someone's here to help us, is what she's thinking. So she goes to open the door, and it's Deborah's cousin, Cameron Cowart. He looks down at Nicole when she answers the door and he's like, hey, will you let Debbie know I'm dropping off the car? But Nicole doesn't say sure. She says, she's dead. And Cameron awkwardly chuckles, thinking this little girl has a strange imagination. But when she grabs his arm with more desperation in her voice, again saying she's dead, his face turns white. He races inside, straight to Deborah's bedroom, where he is faced with a scene worse than he could have imagined. And he yells out, it's Paul. So people knew yeah, that this they... guy was harassing them.
2: Yeah, she yeah. must have talked to family yeah. and friends that she was scared. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and they were like genuinely scared and told a lot of people. And they tried to do a lot of things to keep him away. So Did they get um, a
2: restraining order?
0: They did, yeah. And
2: it didn't help?
0: No. Nope. Because it's like, the sad thing is with restraining orders is they're only going to work on people who don't want to get in trouble with the law. But if you're willing to kill someone, you don't really care, obviously, to not break the law. Right. (laughs) So... It's like, yes, they work for, like, decent people who don't want to get in trouble, but they don't work for people who are, like, off their rocker and not caring to, like, if they're going to murder someone, they also could care less if they break this restraining order. Yeah. So, it's sad. I mean, it's like a step in the right direction, but when someone's scary, it's like a piece of paper isn't enough. It's not. It's not. There needs to be more things in place for these this stuff, but...
2: There really does.
0: It makes me think of, because Jeffrey Dahmer's getting talked about a lot, you know, right now, of course, because that show came out, and everybody on TikTok, I see, like, blaming his parents and, like, being like, oh, they knew something was wrong with him, and I was literally thinking, like, so what if they did know what, like, what could they have done?
2: Yeah, what are they supposed like, to do? Like call the
0: police and say like I th- my son I think could murder someone? <laughs>
2: <laughs> right, cuz the police aren't going to do anything, especially those police.
0: Uh yeah, especially them. But like I literally was wondering that like if someone seriously thinks a family member of theirs could kill someone, what do we expect them to do? Because there's nothing in place to monitor them or yeah. Yeah, and especially not like in domestic violence cases. Yeah. After I checked on Debbie and saw she
1: wasn't alive anymore, my baby brother had woken up. I heard him crying, and so I went into the kitchen to try to make him a bottle, which I don't think I accomplished, or maybe I did because I don't I don't recall him still crying. So maybe I did manage to make him a bottle, and then um, I got my little sister and I said to her. We got to pack. We got to move now. Yeah, so we started unloading our clothes out of the dresser, um, getting ready to pack. And the only thing that I can think of why I would have reacted that way as a five-year-old, because I just recently probably moved out of my father's house and known, this is what we do. We pack up and leave.
0: So when Cameron goes inside the room, he can hear the lady on the other end of the CB radio. It's Paula Burns, the woman who testified in trial about what she heard on that radio. Cameron calls out to Paula and he's asking her to call a relative. I believe he's asking Paula to make a call to his relatives so that he can get more of Deborah's family over to the home. And then while Paula makes this call for him, Cameron calls the police. Then after that, I hear a knock on the door. So I go and answer
1: the door and it was Cameron Cowart which was Deborah's cousin. And he had borrowed her car and was saying, "'Just tell Debbie I'm returning her car.' And I said, "'She's dead.' And he thought I was just a five-year-old with an active imagination and thought nothing of it. And I grabbed his arm and tugged on him. I said, "'She's dead.' And so then he realized I wasn't just saying stuff. And he ran into the house and he said, "'Oh my God, it's
0: Paul.' When police arrive, they're very quickly directed to look at Paul Roop. By the time officers had gotten there, Cameron and Deborah's relatives had showed. Some of Cameron's family had come, along with Deborah's brother. Officer Reynolds takes the task of interviewing five-year-old Nicole, who identifies her dad as the intruder who stabbed Natalie and Deborah. Nicole remembers being taken from the home to an officer's house while police contact Natalie's parents. Soon, Nicole and her siblings would be adopted into their maternal grandparents' custody. She lived two hours away from what, Redding? There I am with the R's again. Oh my gosh. She lived two hours away from Redding in Woodland, California. One of the police officers took us to her home.
1: I'm saying her because I recall it a female, but sometimes my memories switch genders on people. (laughs) We stayed overnight at the police officer's house and i remember her pointing to the stars in the sky that night and telling me my mom was up in the sky in one of those stars i remember her talking something about god to me i don't know what but i didn't really know about god because my mother wasn't religious so i remember that night when uh, we went to sleep she had teenage boys and they were out in the yard playing really loud rap music and I would never heard rap music before. Um, I thought God was talking to me because <laughs> the lady had was talking to me about God and I ran out of the room and I said, God's talking to me, God's talking to me. And, and, and she goes, oh no, that's my kids and their music. I'll tell them to turn it down.
0: Natalie was born Natalie Bernadette Garcia, and she was the second youngest child with five sisters and one brother. Natalie and Paul Roop had met in high school where they both attended Woodland High School. Once Paul graduates, he decides to join the military. Nicole isn't graduated yet, but she wants to be with her high school sweetheart. So she drops out of school and they get married before Natalie joins the military alongside her new husband. The couple goes into the army and they start moving around the country. Any fa- military family will know that the duty often comes with several moves to new bases. So their first da- daughter, Nicole, who you've been hearing from today, was born in Fayetteville, North Carolina. Sometime between having Nicole and having her second daughter a couple years later, Natalie decides to join the army reserves as a junior technician. I'm not in the military, but nor is our family. So correct me if I'm wrong, but from friends we've had that are in the military, I gather that the reserves are much less of a commitment. It's my understanding that they meet up one week in a month for training and it like keeps them in the military and some of those benefits, but they don't have to like be actively working in the military. So maybe she wants to do this to have more time with her kids I'm not sure if Paul also goes to the reserves around this time or if he stays in the military or if he stops altogether, and Nicole doesn't remember what he was doing when the family moves to Redding, California. There isn't information about Natalie and Paul's marriage before the split, and Nicole doesn't recall what their marriage is like before May of 1985, but clearly it's very possible that domestic violence was present in the home and a factor into Natalie's decision to leave. What Nicole did remember was that her dad was drinking pretty heavily.
1: Yeah. Uh, Well, I have, like, other small, vague memories. Um, Like, I remember him uh, sitting in front of the TV drinking a Budweiser, and a commercial came on to not drink and drive. And I said, Mommy, tell Daddy not to drink and drive, and because he literally would drink and drive. I remember seeing him drinking a beer while driving, and she was like, no, you go tell him. <laughs> and so I went and told him, and, and, and I went and told him, don't drink and drive, you shouldn't drink and drive, but he, like, didn't make any commentary back.
0: So, although we don't know a lot about their marriage, before the split, there is evidence of domestic violence following the split. During Paul's trial, an officer testifies about an incident which occurred about seven weeks before the double murder. This officer was called for a family disturbance to the home of Paul Roop on July 7, 1985. Paul and Natalie are fighting. They're in a physical altercation when the officer arrives. And after the officer separates them, he notes scrapes and bumps are present on both of them. This argument could have possibly occurred after Natalie makes a trip to Paul's home to reclaim some of her possessions. They aren't necessarily tied together in the appeals documents I found, but both incidents are mentioned. It's said that in early July 1985, Natalie goes to grab some of the things that belonged to her and her children. I read elsewhere that Deborah had gone with Natalie to help her collect these items, and Paul felt he had been robbed by the women. Natalie and Deborah had also filed a restraining order against Paul, and they told their neighbors they feared him coming to their home. Since moving in together, Paul had repeatedly harassed Natalie and Deborah. He slashed Deborah's car tires. He left threatening notes pinned to their front door. The situation was escalating and the women were not naive to the fact they were in danger. Was
2: Deborah just her friend? Just a random friend or like she'd known her for a while?
0: Yeah. Nicole couldn't tell me a ton and like I said there's only a couple articles so there's like one article and then two appeals documents that are online so there's little bits and pieces of information in the appeals documents but there's not a lot of information about like them specifically so Nicole thinks that they had met through work or through the army reserves or something like that Um, Debra has a daughter similar to, like, Nicole's age, and so they're just going through the same situation, so it's pretty fresh, but like I said in the beginning, Debra was already wanting to move out. After dealing with Paul for a little while, she was looking for a new place.
2: I mean, that's what I was thinking, like, if you just barely met the person and this crazy, her, like, crazy ex-spouse was, you know, stalking you and slashing your tires, I'd be like, I'm out. Like... But if it was, like, your friend for a long time, I mean, you'd still want to get out, but I feel like you'd be more.
0: Yeah, I do think they just met there in Reading because it sounds like Deborah grew up in Reading or nearby while Natalie grew up two hours away in Woodland. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think after dealing with Paul for a couple of months, she was like, I'm sorry, but I'm getting out of here. And unfortunately, she's not able to move out before it's too late. Yeah. Just days before they're murdered, Natalie and Deborah attend a neighborhood watch meeting at the home of Norma Webb. Norma was holding this meeting to teach her neighbors different ways to defend themselves. The woman made it clear to multiple neighbors in attendance that they were fearful of Natalie's ex-husband and that it's likely he will try to hurt or kill them. The girls had become so terrified that Norma ends up lending them a floodlight to put up at their home this happens just the night before their murder and she said quote they told us all about their problems i know how frightened both of them were
1: my mom and deborah told everyone at the neighborhood watch meeting and they went to people they asked for help they showed pictures and they said they were afraid and mrs uh, Norma webb they apparently had asked her if she would come stay with them because they were so afraid so she said I can give you some floodlights but she said she
0: felt something deep inside of her say don't stay there so she didn't one neighbor Eileen Cerami told AP News on August 27th 1985 that she heard screaming quote I heard screaming it was definitely screaming I thought if I heard it again I would wake up Joe God help me Eileen lived in an apartment located behind the woman's home and she clearly sounds regretful that she didn't do anything when she heard the screaming. It's not her fault. She could have never predicted that something this tragic was going on, but it does teach us a valuable lesson, which is if you hear screaming or something that is alarming... Like, do something about it, even if it stops. Because I hear this all the time where I think people wait to see if the screaming continues. Like, did I really just hear that? Is there really something weird going on? But, like, if someone's being murdered, the screaming will stop. So don't, (laughs) like, you know. So don't wait. I'm not blaming her at all. I don't think it's her fault. Like I said, it's just a lesson to be learned that if you hear screaming, you might as well call. Cause what's the harm?
2: Have someone go check it out.
0: Yeah, they might as well just look. He was um, slashing tires. He
1: slashed Deborah's tires. Um, he left threatening notes on the on
0: the door, but I but they couldn't really prove it was him, but they knew it was him. So when the kids go to live with their grandparents, they obviously have to move to Woodland, California. Nicole starts kindergarten at a Catholic school there instead of the one she had just toured with her mom weeks earlier. Because I started kindergarten
1: like like a week after my mom died, I yeah, I don't remember kindergarten. My grandmother put uh, me in Catholic school. The following year, she which would have been the year I actually testified cuz it takes like a year to go to trial. Um, she switched me schools and she told me because everybody would know, Everybody knows who I am so if I go to this new school no one will know who I am but that's kind of silly because this is the year I'm testifying now everybody really is going to know who I am and my grandmother when she switched me schools she changed uh, my last name to my mother's, name, mother's maiden name so I think that was her idea because in the kindergarten I was Nicole Roop in first grade I became Nicole Garcia. But I think people knew because I didn't I didn't really have a lot of friends. It seemed like the kids didn't want to be friends with me.
0: At five years old, navigating the loss of both your parents was tough. Natalie had been through a trauma most of us will never be able to understand. The funeral for her mom was confusing. She didn't fully grasp the concept of death yet, so she wasn't crying, and this made her grandma a little frustrated. This grandma is Natalie's mom, so she's probably going through this intense grief herself and trying to navigate that while taking on the role of a parent to three new little kids. Yeah, that was tough. Yeah, I think it was like really tough on everyone
2: plus some people just don't grieve the same like yeah if she didn't want to cry and that maybe that's not how she grieves mm-hmm.
0: and i've heard that often about kids at funerals that like a lot of time they won't cry because they're not really understanding and like their grief comes more in like their day to day life where they see like what's changed yeah versus being at a funeral and knowing they're like never going to see their mom again I think, like, they get it, but I don't know if they can, like, really get it, get it. Plus,
2: there's, like, different stages of grief, and so everybody moves through them differently. Yeah. You know, whereas like, one might be in sadness, one might be in anger.
0: Totally. Yeah. So you can't, like, expect everybody to be, like, having the exact reaction that you would like them to have. Right.
1: Um, it was open casket. My grandmother told me to go kiss my mother goodbye, and I now I have this big phobia of corpses ever since then. <laughs> like, it was enough to have the open casket, okay? I can see my mother. I see she's being buried. I didn't need to kiss her body. Her cold body. It was cold. That's what I remember.
0: So, there is contention among the multiple families ripped apart by this selfish act of violence. And the contention is rampant. Deborah's family blamed Natalie's family. Natalie's family blames Paul's family. And Like, sure, the scenarios are oh, going to run through your head.
2: Deborah's family blamed Natalie's family.
0: Yes, because That's sad. I know. So I'm they sure they didn't do
2: it, or she didn't even do it. I know. It was Paul.
0: Exactly. That's what I was about to say. Like all across the board, you know. Like you can see how the different families have that thought. Like. Deborah should have never moved in with Natalie or you know Natalie's family is like Natalie should have never married Paul but the different scenarios won't change what happened and like you said the blame simply lies with one person and that's who committed the crime which is Paul not even Paul's family can be to blame
2: right it's Paul
0: like they lost a daughter-in-law they have to come to terms with the fact that their son did this horrible thing They're not going to remain close to their grandkids. So it's really like a loss for everybody. Mm -hmm. Only person that sucks is Paul. Well, I don't know. I don't know the family super well, but (laughs) like I said, there's not a ton of info. But in general, it's not their fault.
1: Deborah's family blamed our family for her death. So they wanted nothing to do with us. Um, And then... My grandmother, knowing this was happening to our family, did the same thing to my father's family, blamed them, so we weren't allowed to have much contact with them. Um, There was visits for a short period of time with my father's mother, my grandmother, but because, like, I was so young, I wanted to know why my dad did this, so I'd constantly ask my, the grandmother I was living with, my mother's mom, why did my dad kill my mom? why did he kill my mom I'd always ask her and she like would get very angry with me for asking and she would yell at me and say why don't you ask your other grandma it's her son and so on one of the visits when she came my grandmother pretty much yelled at her and said Nicole aren't you gonna ask her aren't you gonna ask the question that you keep asking me Aren't you gonna ask her why did your dad kill your mom? And like was really
0: taunting her and it made her so uncomfortable, she never came to visit again. So as the trial approaches in the years following the murder, Nicole is set to testify against her dad. She is the only living witness to the murder, regardless of having only been five years old. Um, just my grandmother's
1: reactions because she was very um hostile towards me um she would was wanting me to recall like so much info of what happened and I couldn't like recall everything she wanted me to recall because I I had to testify but and she would get angry that I couldn't remember this because she she would like know what the autopsy said but how come you didn't see this this was in the autopsy you know
0: (laughs) This episode ended up being too long, so that's where I'm going to end it for part one. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Kayla Waters. I research, write, edit, and host this podcast. My co-host is Alicia Jenkins. Our palate cleanser is given to us by Charlie Waters, and our music was created by Jaden Schultz, who you can find on Instagram at InPajamasMusic. Find us on TikTok at True Crime Exposed Podcast, Instagram at True Crime X Pod, or Twitter at True Crime Exposed.